This is the preaching podcast from Keystone Church and Pastor Josh Cox. To find out more about Keystone, visit keystonerdu.church. We hope you enjoy today's message. We are beginning a brand new series today, a brand new series, and I, I always look forward to new series. Uh, honestly, as a somewhat of a younger, I guess you'd call me younger, newer pastor, um, I always move into a new series kind of like, I wonder where this series is going to take us, you know? It's good. I, I, I study ahead of time, and I get, I know, obviously, the direction we're heading, but sometimes when you preach it, um, you know, it winds up uh, coming out differently and whatnot. I am very excited about the book of Nehemiah. Um, I believe it's going to be um, just an amazing, an amazing book. Um, there's a couple of things about it we'll study. Today, the sermon series title is For the City, and that's today's sermon title as well. So the series title is For the City. As we will find out, Nehemiah had a burden and a desire for his city. And um, that's the reason. I usually don't wear a t-shirt when I preach, but that's the reason I wore this t-shirt today. Two reasons. It fits the sermon series, and it's the most comfortable t-shirt that I own. And so I wear it. Um, But I wore that today, and I did not send the memo to wear the t-shirt today, but we have one, two, uh, three, four, five. We got like six or seven people with it on today, so that's good. Um, little Bull City um, shirt today. I will say I was born and raised in Durham. All right, born and raised. I'm sorry, I was born in Greenville. Moved here when I was four months old. So I think I get a pass to say I was born and raised in Durham. Moved here when I was four months old. Um, fell in love with, you know, there's two different Durhams. There's Durham like 2004 and earlier, and there's Durham like 2005 to present. I love both of them. All right. I love the Durham where it's like, there's no way you're ever going downtown or anywhere close to there because you may not come out alive. And I also love the Durham where it's like, hey, we want to we go out to eat somewhere. Do we want to go down to downtown Raleigh or downtown Durham? Let's go to Durham. The food's better. You know, like I like that Durham too. All right. And, uh, but I love my city. Uh, to be honest with you, it was a, a major pull in me moving back to this area from Baltimore was because I love this area. God has planted me and I absolutely love it. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Does it have its issues? You better believe it, just like anywhere else would. Um, it, just over the past two to three weeks in Durham, we have had, it seems, an up, an, uh, like a, a, a kick up in uh, shootings. Not necessarily fatal shootings, but shootings throughout our city over the last three weeks. Those types of things break my heart. Um, and I, and I don't know if you're like me, I want everybody to think Durham is like the best city ever. You know, so then like when we get bad press, I'm like, oh, it's really not that bad. Like, you know, be chill, you know. Um, but I do love my city. And so as I have read through the book of Nehemiah several times in preparation, as I have uh, used some sermon preparation, um, some helps, uh, different online helps and books, four or five different books that I'm using to help study my way through this book, um, I keep coming back to Nehemiah loved his city. And I resonate with that. I resonate with that. Um, there are things that have happened in, in, the, in the past in Durham. And, and I would encourage you, by the way, uh, to, especially if you live in Durham. I know we have people here who live in Raleigh. We have people here who live, live in Hillsboro. But wherever you're at, wherever you're planted, wherever God has you, you know, 
look up, study up on like the history and how the city came to be uh, what it was. I mean, if you don't know much about the history of Durham, um, the Durham Freeway, 147, created a lot of divide and conflict in our city back in the day because Haytai community, which is on the south side of 147, used to flow right into downtown Durham. And everything, we had Black Wall Street here on, in Durham, and there was a lot of minority-owned businesses and a lot of things like that. And when 147 came through, it kind of created tracks. And you were on one side of the tracks or the other side of the tracks. And there, was, there, there became a lot of division. Um, our city is marked by its, um, the oddity of a Ivy League school in Duke operating in a kind of a minority-driven city in Durham. There's, a, there's just a beautiful, odd mix in Durham, and I love it. I absolutely love it. And so I hope that throughout this series you hear my heart for our city interwoven in the story of Nehemiah and his heart for Jerusalem. And I hope that we, we get that. I hope that we, when we leave this series, as we'll be in it several weeks, but as we go through this series and we leave this series, we'll leave this series um, understanding Nehemiah's burden, but also with the burden in our heart ignited um, for our city. And so Nehemiah chapter 1 is where we'll be today. Nehemiah chapter 1, just some background details that I want to make sure we are aware of so we understand the context of the book of Nehemiah. God had warned the nation of Israel and his children that he would send them into foreign captivity if they continued in their sin, mainly idolatry. If you know the history of the children of Israel, there were two main things they always did. Worshipped idols and complained. And God would continually rebuke them punish them just like your kids and they do good for a little while and then they go right back into idolatry and complaining and then he rebuked them and then they go back so God says as you continue uh, he that he would allow them to go into foreign captivity they ignored him as they did so often and they not only ignored God but they ignored the prophets that God had sent to warn the children of Israel and they continued running headlong into disobedience. God then uses the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire uh, to evict Israel from its land, to remove the children of Israel from Jerusalem, from Israel, and to destroy the temple and to take them captive. So with the people in captivity away from their homeland, it appeared that Israel had no hope and no future. But God, as he always does, had pre-planned and had actually told them that they would stay in this captivity for 70 years. Now that's a, that's a lifetime, <clears throat> but that's only 70 years. And at the end of that time, he began raising up men, and you'll recognize a couple of names, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and others to lead his people back to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the city that had been taken and torn down. He also sent prophets. We you see those minor prophets throughout Scripture, Haggai, Haggai Zechariah, other minor prophets uh, that we study. They were sent to the children to encourage them to continue their rebuilding efforts of the city. And under this godly leadership of men like Ezra, Nehemiah, and the prophets, 
they got a new start. Unfortunately, though, and predictably, I'll go ahead and tell you this, the end of the book of Nehemiah does not end positively. I hate to break it to you, and it's 13 chapters long. We're probably not going to be in it for 13 weeks. We're going to, break, we're going to use some chunks of Scripture throughout this. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, bad news, this is not your fluff book. They turn back to their old idolatrous ways. Okay, They turn back. <clears throat> and some other things that you need to know, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were at one point considered one book of the Bible. Um, in fact, uh, many called Nehemiah second Ezra. Um, it's widely believed that Ezra is actually the author of the book of Nehemiah. And whenever you hear Nehemiah speaking in first person, I went, went and I did this, it is because Ezra is writing down part of the journals of Nehemiah is what is widely believed as far as the authorship of this book especially the first seven chapters you kind of get that this is nehemiah speaking but it's actually ezra uh, pinning many of nehemiah's words that he had written ezra will document and we're not going to study the book of ezra right now but ezra document documents the first two waves of god's people returning to jerusalem so there was there was a wave uh, led by zerubbabel in 538 bc so 538 years before the birth of Christ, and then the second wave was led in 458 B.C., about 80 years later by Ezra. Those are documented in the book of Ezra. And now the book of Nehemiah will pick up with this cupbearer, Nehemiah. He was the cupbearer of the Persian king Artaxerxes. He's brokenhearted for his city and for the people who had returned to it because the city walls had been destroyed and not rebuilt. And in those days, if the city walls were not built up, they were just sitting ducks for enemies to come and completely destroy them again and remove them. So Nehemiah finds himself as a cupbearer to the king of Persia. He is about a three months journey away from Jerusalem. So when he was taken captive, we feel like everyone pretty much agrees that the way that Nehemiah ended up in Persia, in Shushan as the city, was through captivity. If you look at a map, it's right over top of the Persian Gulf, and then it's like way over there is Jerusalem. About a three months journey. But Nehemiah finds himself burdened for his city and unable to be there at the time. As you can imagine, a cupbearer to the king, if you don't know uh, what a cupbearer did or, or what his function and role was, he would quite literally risk his life on a daily basis to save the life of the king. As you can imagine, there were many ways that a king could be compromised and his life be in danger. Um, but one of them would be through poisoning his food or his drink. And so literally before every, or any or everything that King Artaxerxes would eat or drink, uh, Nehemiah would take a sip of and take a bite of and obviously we understand like if you're successful at your job you're dead all right so like that's not a cool job but it probably came with perks that would mean wherever the king was Nehemiah was uh, wherever the king was invited <clears throat> Nehemiah came along there were probably some perks of the job but once again if you were successful at it you were poisoned. All right, so you didn't really want to be successful at your job. You just want to eat some really good food every now and then. 
But that poison would kill him or obviously not kill the king. There was a great deal of trust that Nehemiah had developed as a Jew with Artaxerxes. If you can imagine, a great deal of trust. We're going to learn some things, I believe, from this book that is going to help us as we love our city, as we have a heart for our city and our area, the Raleigh-Durham area. And by the way, it kind of does frustrate me, and I use the term sometimes. Raleigh-Durham, come on. Like, it's way different, please. Raleigh is Raleigh, Durham is Durham, please, Lord. All right, but, uh, and I love how, we got some Raleigh people in here. Yeah, I'm eyeing you guys up, some Raleigh people. And Raleigh people, historically, have kind of like looked down their noses at Durham a little bit. Like, oh, it's Durham. The other day, I went to a Walmart in Raleigh, and I was like, take me back to Durham quickly. <laughs> Head west on 40 quickly. All right, I'm ready to roll. But can we come this morning, just kind of a background opening. Can we come this morning uh, together? Let's read the text. We're going to pray, and we're going to dive right into the first chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, if you have your Bibles. If not, it'll be on the screen. Ezra writes these words, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali. Does that sound good? Cool. Came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept, and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Verse 5, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Verse 8, remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Heavenly Father, speak through your word today. Teach us through this book. God, I pray that we would leave here today responding as Nehemiah responded. God, give us a higher view of you. God, give us a lower view of ourselves. 
God, I pray that you would work in our hearts through your word. We magnify your word. We stand on your word today as our final authority. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First thing I want us to see this morning, right off the bat, number one is the problem Nehemiah saw. The problem that Nehemiah saw, verse 1, 2, and 3, it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity. So he asked them about Jerusalem. Here's what they said, verse 3. The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there, and they are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. The book of Ezra taught us and teaches us that King Artaxerxes did not permit those who had returned to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the wall. Uh, some of the enemies of the children of Israel convinced King Artaxerxes to not allow that to happen, obviously in their mind, leaving it open for them to come in and invade. Uh, Nehemiah was located in Shushan, that's where he was stationed, or another word for that is Susa, S-U-S-A. As I mentioned earlier, it's about a three-month journey walking to Jerusalem from there. Uh, Shushan, by the way, Susa, was the same city where the book of Esther took place. She was in Shushan, the palace. In fact, some people believe that Esther could have possibly still been alive at the beginning of Nehemiah's life. So they were contemporaries, same city. Just connecting some dots here of scripture. I always like when that happens. Uh, Nehemiah uh, ended up in Shushan holding the rank of cupbearer, more than likely due to captivity. And so he was hearing of the suffering of the Jews being hundreds of miles away. His brother shows up with the news, think about it, at least three months late, because it was a three-month journey. And then it'd be another three-month journey back. So you have to understand the helplessness. We are a spoiled people today, that there could be a, an event take place on the other side of the world, and we will know about it immediately. And I often say this, it's actually kind of a dangerous thing. Because we, this, this sounds bad, but it was a good thing. We used to not really care to give our opinion on every little thing that ever happened in any society ever. In fact, if it ever did hit our news, it was like a blip on the bottom of the screen and we never really thought about it. And now we know everything. And not only do we know everything, we have an opinion about everything. Think about this. Think about Nehemiah's burden that he had and think about hearing these things knowing well, my brother's giving me this information. This information that he's given me is at least three months old. There's no telling what's gone on in those three months, even. And so he's hearing that, being far away. The people of God, he hears, are in great danger, small in number and completely open to the attacks of the enemy. A couple of observations that I want to make about Nehemiah's perspective was this number one, Nehemiah cared and sought out and asked about the condition of his city. Second thing is that he, he had focused his attention on others. And I want to apply that and think about it in our lives. Do we, do we, are we aware of the condition of our city? We're not a three months journey. We live in it. Does it break our hearts when things happen in our communities and in our city? 
When we see our culture, when we see society, when we see the secularism and humanism that is invading our society, when we see people who literally are dying, does it break our hearts? Does it hurt us when people, when our city hurts? Over the last couple of years, our city's been the topic of national conversation sometimes, and some of the the wars quote-unquote, that have gone on in our city and statues torn down and people very opinionated on this side of an issue and other people very opinionated on the other side of that same issue. Does it hurt and break our hearts? Do we reach out in the condition of our city? Do we reach out to God? Do we reach out to Him? Do we, are we concerned at all about the condition of our city do we seek to educate ourselves on what is really going on around us and i've been i'm doing trying to do a much better job of this but we have so many people that complain about what goes on locally and they don't even know who locally represents them politically they don't even know who the city council members are but we complain about everything that goes on in our city and this has been a challenge to me i want to get better at this I love how we focus all of our attention politically nationally and we ignore locally. And how many of you understand locally really determines our day-to-day life a whole lot more than nationally? Do we care to educate ourselves? Do we care to involve ourselves? Do we care to reach out? Do we care to offer a, a, a helping hand? Do we care? He sought out the condition of a city and he focused his attention on others. Do we genuinely care about other people? When we hear about something that happens in a neighborhood maybe near us, is there a, do we ever reach out? Do we ever try to, to be an actual blessing, focusing our attention on others? By the way, I'm sure Nehemiah had his fair share of personal issues to deal with. Namely, is this bite of food going to kill me? How about that sip of wine? Is it going to kill me? You keep, keep in mind, he had a job to do. And that job was very risky. Life and death, every single day, multiple times a day. And so our, our, our excuses of I'm too busy or I've got my mind focused in other places to really care about my community and really, really reach out and try to find the condition of my city and to focus my attention on other people in my city. Listen, Nehemiah had his own issues and personal things going on, like living and dying. But he was concerned about his home city. He was concerned about the people and his brothers and sisters and, and cousins and aunts and uncles and others that would be there in Jerusalem as part of the remnant that had returned. He loved his city. So we see the problems. And by the way, we can see the problems around us. And I would encourage you, if you don't see the problems around you, and problems is a negative word, but if you don't see the, the condition around you to open, lift up your eyes. And when you're driving around where, you're going, where you go to work, from your house to work, lift up your eyes and look around a little bit. I encourage you not to, not to be content with your head buried in the sand over local issues and over what goes on locally in our city and, and your city, wherever, whatever city you live in. Can I encourage you today to involve yourself in the lives of others and the lives of your community? Care. Care. The problem that he saw. The problem Nehemiah saw, but secondly this morning and where we really want to spend our time is the response that Nehemiah had. The response that Nehemiah had. I'm just going to read verse 4, 
But he hears from his brother what has happened. In verse 4, he says this. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah hears of the problems facing a city. And guess what? He at that moment cannot do anything about it. He cannot do anything about it. In fact, he is helpless. He hears of the, of the issues. He is helpless. And he immediately, he immediately goes into prayer. Immediately, he falls down on his knees. And, and as he says, he sat down. He weeps. He mourns for many days. He fasts and prays before the God of heaven. Because you know why? He had found a problem that he could not handle on his own immediately. And let me say this, when we get put in those situations where we are presented a problem that we can't handle immediately, that will drive us to our knees quicker than anything. I, I'm a, a parent of a eight and a 10 year old girl. I do not know what this is like, but I can, some of you in here are parents of young adults. And your parents of young adults that live, I think of uh, Bill and Lauren, uh, they got a son that lives in Florida. And guess what? They could get a phone call at any moment with some issue, something. And guess what? At the very least, they're an hour and a half, two hour flight, at the very least, away from physically being able to be there. How many of you understand sometimes we find ourselves in situations that we wish we could go correct and we can't because we're not there? And that's what Nehemiah found himself in. It is in those situations that we feel most helpless. I don't know about you, but I'm a, I'm a guy who likes to problem solve. And it's not necessarily a good thing sometimes. I can't listen. Someone cannot. If you talk to me about something in my head, if it's a, if it's a negative, I'm already going into, let me help you solve this problem real quick. I've got an idea. Right? And that's what I want to do. I want to solve problems. But sometimes we have problems in our lives that we can't solve. In fact, a quote that I want you to, to understand and remember from the sermon today is, God will give us more than we can handle so that we understand that it is never more than He can handle. I want you to understand that statement. Nehemiah was presented a problem that he couldn't do anything about, physically speaking. And sometimes God will give us more than we can handle so that we will understand that it is never more than he can handle. And sometimes I think we try to handle all of our own problems. And I think every now and then God drops something in our lives like, hey, you're a three-month journey away from your home city. And your home city is, being, is wide open and susceptible to attack. There's only a small group of people there from, your, from, from the children of Israel. Hey, good luck, Nehemiah. And the only place that you can go in those times is down to your knees and straight to Him. That's the only place you can go in those times when you have been given more than you can handle. And I hate that phrase that people say, God's never going to give you more than you can handle. Yes, He will. He's going to do that on a consistent basis, in fact. He loves to give you more than you can handle so that you will rely on Him because He can handle it. Hey, I can't handle it, but I know someone who can handle it. And today, if you find yourself in a situation and a problem and an issue in your life that you can't handle, congratulations, because you have now opened yourself up to giving that to God in prayer, in worship, in fasting, in weeping, because he's given you more than you can handle so that you will realize that it's never more 
than he can handle. This prayer that Nehemiah prays lasts from basically verse 5, uh, verse 4 down through verse 11. And we're going to break apart this prayer. I will say this. Number one, you need to have a consistent prayer life. You need to be living a life of prayer. Um, and this would be a good pattern for prayer, a good outline for prayer, just on your daily basis, just on a daily basis prayer. By the way, prayer is not just um, you giving your wish list to God, the, the magic genie. Just, just going to throw that out there. It's not just, hey, I got three wishes. Let me give you my three prayer requests. So here's an outline for prayer. There are, other, there are other places in Scripture, obviously, the model prayer. That's why it's called that. All right, It's the model for how you do this. But here's a good uh, kind of pattern that we can use um, as we pray. Look at the first thing under the response Nehemiah had. It was a prayer of intensity. It was a prayer of intensity. Verse 4, uh, when I heard these words, I sat down, I wept. I mourned for many days. I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I Listen, I'm not against this at all. Man, you teach your kids this. But this was not a, now I lay me down to sleep, a bag of popcorn at my feet. You know, this was not one of those prayers. This was not a quick, hey, we need to pray for the food. Dear Lord, thank you for the food. Let's eat. This was not, this was an intense time of prayer intense now i'm gonna i will show you in the next chapter that nehemiah didn't always have these intense types of prayer because he goes before the king in the next chapter and the king asks him a question and nehemiah literally in that moment goes dear lord please help me please help me to respond properly to the king in this moment like he gives one of those real quick like so i'm not saying but for this issue for this problem it was big and he spent an intense time in prayer weeping Mourning, fasting for the children of Israel and for the city of Jerusalem. He fasted. He gave up food because he cared about his people. When is the last time? There was the longest that I've ever had a season of fasting was 10 days. And y'all know how I like to eat. Right? Okay. It was a crazy 10 days in my household. I'm just going to let you know. 10 days was, was, was the most that I've done. I know I have a friend of mine that's on a 40-day fast, uh, which is pretty incredible. But he fasted because it was serious. And all fasting is, is you are, you are coming before the Lord saying that I'm willing to remove what I need because I care about something else and I want you to work on behalf of something, something else or someone else. And Nowadays, in 2019, we have fasting from different things as well. I know people that fast from social media, and we all probably could stand to do that for a month or two or three. Um, that would be a good thing. But food is the main one, because we need food so desperately. We need it so desperately. But this was an intense season of prayer that Nehemiah went in. An intense season. In fact, many theologians believe between chapter 1, where he prays this prayer, and what we're going to talk about next week when he, when he addresses the king, that there was about a four-month period there between the time that he prays and the time that he goes to the king. This was a season of his life that he spent in prayer. An intense prayer. And can I say this? God's not going to do amazingly exponential things above anything that we could ever ask or think if we're praying prayers like, now lay me down to sleep. Lord, bless the food. 
God be with all the missionaries all over the world. Amen. If we're not willing to spend intense time. Intense. That doesn't mean that, that we all will do that the same way. But it means that it takes priority. It means that it's a big deal. It means that we spend time. Can I, just, can I give you uh, just some help? I don't know if any of you, I do every now and then struggle getting to sleep or staying asleep, waking up multiple times during the night. Can I help my, I used to hear this from my dad. Every time I wake up in the night, I take it that the Lord has woken me up for a reason. The Lord has woken me up for a reason. And he would spend a season of time in prayer. And if you're like, let's be real real quick, all right? Nothing will put you to sleep quicker than trying to pray. All right, so, uh, so it's a season of prayer. And before you know it, you're back to sleep. Now, that's not your mechanism of how you get to sleep, but hey. But I've always taken that. If the Lord wakes me up to use the restroom in the middle of the night, it's a time for me to pray about something, someone, for someone. Some of you, I won't ever text you at like, you know, 2.30 in the morning when I wake up and use the restroom. But I'll text some of you later on in the day, next day and say, hey, I pray for you this morning. It was probably at 2.30 in the morning when the Lord woke me up. Um, seasons of intense prayer, though. Seasons of prayer where we take time out of our schedule to pray. But not only was it a prayer of intensity, but secondly, it was a prayer of worship. Look at verse 5. And I, said, uh, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Nehemiah took time as if God needed to hear it, but he does love to hear it, reminding God of who he was and how awesome that he is. And so in this prayer of intensity, God, I want you to know how much, I'm, how much this means. And God, I want you to move in this area of my life or someone else's life. And in intercessory prayer, God, this is important to me. And God, by the way, just in case you forgot, you're an awesome God. You're an amazing God. God, I worship you. You see, our prayer time is also a praise time because we are worshiping him and praising him before we just simply throw our needs and requests up to Santa Claus because he sees you when you're sleeping and he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. That's the way a lot of people treat God. Hey God, I got a wish list. Here we go. Instead of doing that, instead of just throwing what we want at God, we worship him in the beauty of his name and the beauty of who he is, oh great and awesome God. And so as we intensely come before God in weeping and prayer, we come before him intensely and we come before him worshipfully and we worship him. By the way, your prayer time should quickly, it should be like a mixture of prayer and praise. It should be a mixture. That's why many people say to bring uh, a song, a hymn book, or to bring um, a, a, your favorite album or whatever into prayer with you. Because it was a prayer of worship. Thirdly, I want us to see, and we're walking right through the text. I see the time this morning. I want to get us out. Thirdly, it was a prayer of confession and repentance. It was a prayer of confession and repentance verse 6 please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant which i pray before you now day and night for the children of israel your servants here's where he gets to and confess 
the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. We won't sing that this morning, but that old hymn is exactly what Nehemiah practices here. And notice that Nehemiah does not just confess and repent of personal sin. He confesses and says, my fathers, my people, and I have sinned. He took personal responsibility, but he confessed the sins of his culture. He confessed the sins of the children of Israel to God. And can I say that I have to be very honest with you. I don't know if there's been a time where I've come before the Lord and said, God, on behalf of my city, on behalf of the city that you have placed me in, God, I confess our sin. I confess our sin and ask for repentance for our sin and, and my sin. But God, we, we have rejected you. God, we have moved on in our culture apart from the holy creator of the universe. God, we have ignored you in all facets and areas of our lives. God, we haven't and, and I have. I don't know if there's been a time just being very honest with you, but I want there to be, and there, there, will, be a, there will be now for me, times where I want to go before God and say, God, on behalf of the people that I love, on behalf of our community, on behalf of the city that you've placed me in, God, God, I, I confess. God, I confess. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Psalm 66 and verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Nehemiah confessed, yes, corporately and personally, sin before God. But make no mistake about it, I believe scripture is clear that when there is sin and evil in our hearts that's unconfessed and unrepentant in our hearts, that the Lord owes us no obligation to respond to our prayers. You say, that's kind of harsh. I'm sorry. Uh, sometimes the Bible is harsh. That's all good. Where the Bible is harsh, we're harsh. Where the Bible is loving, we're loving. All right. I think Scripture is pretty clear. If we hold iniquity in our hearts, and what that means is if we have unconfessed and unrepentant sin that we allow in our hearts and we do not confess and we do not take care of that sin, that God owes us no obligation to hear and answer our prayer. I know that doesn't sit well with some people, but that's, it's, it's biblical truth, and Nehemiah was actually practicing that. Hey, God, before I tell you, before I, before I get into this, this season of prayer, this this something four month season of prayer god i want to confess and i want to repent of sin and listen as we come before god on behalf of our city on behalf of our community on behalf of the area god has placed us in confess and repent confess and repent 
And by the way, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive. Listen, you know God never tells us that we have to beg him for forgiveness of sins. When did you gain forgiveness of sins? When you accepted the good news of the gospel and the power of the cross that happened 2,000 years ago, he forgave sin of the past, sin of the present, sin of the future. We no longer have to beg for forgiveness. We just have to confess. We just have to confess it before him. That's, a, that's an amazing truth. Sideline, not really part of what we're talking about today, but that's just a sideline truth you need to rest in today. The sin that you're hiding from God that you won't confess, he's already forgiven it. He's already forgiven it. Just confess it. Just confess it. He's already seen your hand in the cookie jar. And forgiven it. Just confess it. Just tell him. Just tell him. But not only do we see the prayer of intensity, the prayer of worship, the prayer of confession and repentance, but lastly this morning we see it was a prayer of promise and hope. It was a prayer of promise and hope. Remember verse 8, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Verse 9, but if you return to me, and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the earth, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And I'll stop there because of time. This is a prayer of hope and promise. Nehemiah reminds God, you said if, the, if your people would repent and would turn back to you that you would gather them back together you would put them back together and by the way that is why the events of if i'm not mistaken the, the year is 1948 the events of the of the nation of israel being recognized again as it that's why it's so important because a lot of this stuff right here factors into that it's god once again telling his children that he has got the place for them to be a part of a nation that's why it's a big deal but the truth is, he comes before God and he says, God, you said if we would, then you would. And God, I'm coming before you on that condition. God, if we'll repent and we'll turn back to you, will you bring us back together? Will you heal the land? Will you, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, and this applies directly to the children of Israel, will you do that? And although I mentioned at the beginning, we know this book will come full circle with the children of God yet again choosing idolatry and complaining and sin. Choosing their way over God's way, we see Nehemiah present hope in his petition before God. Hope. What we need to understand is the book of Nehemiah chronologically is actually the last book of the Old Testament. In fact, the book of Malachi was written during the time of Nehemiah. The, last, the final chapter, chapter 13 in the book of Nehemiah, is the closest chapter in the Bible to Matthew chapter 1, to the New Testament. Even though this is Nehemiah's, obviously, before, you know, book of Psalms and even you know, before all of the minor prophets, where it actually chronologically ends is the last chapter before the New Testament. This book somewhat brings to a close what the Old Testament has highlighted for literally thousands of years. Scores of Old Testament books, thousands of Old Testament chapters and verses have basically said this. The children of Israel, no matter how good God has been to them, continue to drift back into their sin, often idolatry and complaining. 
But the book of Nehemiah will conclude, and this was the hope. Yes, the hope for Nehemiah was to physically rebuild the city and physically see the, the, people, the children of Israel back together. We were going to see that over the next few chapters. He physically wanted to see that tangibly. But this hope that Nehemiah talks about and this, this, this future that Nehemiah talks about is the fact that Nehemiah, the end of this book, will usher in a new age, a new covenant. There'll be 400 years of silence as far as the canon of Scripture is concerned. If you are kind of a Bible nerd, there, there are some, um, some writings that weren't included in Scripture that, are, that kind of take place in between uh, those times, and you know, feel free. They're not inspired words of God, but hey, feel free to look them up and read them if you'd like. But this new age, after 400 years of biblical science, uh, silence, this new covenant, this new age, a virgin would conceive. And the children of Israel that had gone back and forth from idolatry and complaining to repentance. From idolatry and complaining and back into repentance. And from idolatry and complaining back to repentance. The prayer of Nehemiah offered hope. And not just temporary hope that their physical walls would be rebuilt and that the physical people there would be able to be in a protected city and that the, the children of Israel would be able to once again return to their homeland. Yes, that was part of it. But the real hope would be the overarching thought of this book. That just 400 years from its end, hope would be born. Jesus would come. All the sins, all the, right, all the wrongs would be righted. They would be righted by a perfect and sinless Savior. So that the children of Israel from the book of Exodus, who disobeyed God and were punished, and brought back to him through repentance. And then disobeyed God again. And were brought back to him through repentance. And then disobeyed again. And fell back into idolatry. That all of this cycle, all of this cycle, all of this cycle. Was going to come to a head. And these children of Israel were going to have to answer one question. Is this Jesus who is on his way? Is he the Messiah? Is he the promised one? And as we well know. Many did not believe, and to this day do not believe. But as we also know, there were those who believed, and to this day do believe. But all those wrongs and all those negatives and all the cycle of sin into repentance and sin into repentance and sin into repentance would be met by the perfect sinless Savior. The one who lived the life that the children of Israel couldn't live. A perfect life. Hey, the one who lived a life that you couldn't live and that I couldn't live. The perfect, sinless life. He lived a life that Nehemiah, as good of a man as Nehemiah was, as good of a man as he was, the life Nehemiah couldn't live. As good of a man as the prophets were, Haggai and Zechariah, as good of men as Zerubbabel and Ezra, as good of men as those men were, and all the minor prophets and the major, all the Old Testament prophets, as good of men as they were, they could not live that life. And Jesus came. And he came and lived that life. He came to live the life that we couldn't live to show us that he was our perfect and sinless Messiah. Savior, 
And He came and He he died on Calvary's cross after living that perfect sinless life. He came and He died the death that you deserve to die. And that I deserve to die. And that Nehemiah deserved to die. And that all of the Old Testament prophets deserved to die. He died the death that you and I deserved to die. He did that because he, he loved you. Because he loves you so much and he loves you so much. And the gospel is simply this. The gospel is the good news that you can't do it. Remember helpless Nehemiah? And guess what? In your sin, helpless your name. In your sin, helpless your name. And when you, have, when, you, when you find yourself in that helpless state, the only thing you can do is recognize that God has put you in that helpless state so that you will realize that there is never a helpless state with God. And that you'll turn to Him. And confess and repent of your sin. And believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved this morning the story of nehemiah we're gonna we're gonna get into the details of it we're gonna go through and see some of the the leadership qualities that nehemiah possesses and we're gonna learn about leadership we're gonna learn about uh standing firm when there's opposition we're gonna learn all about that but the overarching theme is that the book of nehemiah as much as possible is bridging the gap to jesus to jesus can I ask you an honest question? You say, I've been in church for a long time, Josh. Is Jesus your personal Savior? You say, but you don't know who my parents were. Well, you don't know who mine were. Huh? Is Jesus your personal, not your mama's Savior? Is he your personal Savior? Has there been a time where you have repented of your sin and repented of your way and repented of your good works and placed your trust fully in the completed work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. You see, there is no other way. There is no other way. Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way. There is no other way. He is the door by whom all must enter. Have you entered through that door? Have you placed your faith and your belief into Jesus Christ and entered into a personal, real relationship with him he wants to be your savior he wants so badly to be your personal savior he wants to change your life today tomorrow he wants to change your eternity from destined to hell to sealed into heaven would you believe this morning would you believe would you take that step of belief Believing on Jesus and Him alone. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. This has been the preaching podcast from Keystone Church and Pastor Josh Cox. For more information about Keystone Church, visit keystonerdu.church. Please subscribe to hear future messages. Thank you.